Today in the garage, we have Lisa Jorgensen. Lisa maintains a busy trial and appellate practice focused on criminal and constitutional litigation. She is also a director of the Criminal Lawyers Association, volunteers her time with pro bono litigation and education projects, and is committed to ensuring access to justice for all. I had the pleasure of working with Lisa in the past. She is one of Canada's most powerful advocates. Today, we spoke about appeals and bail pending appeal. Whether you're driving your Acura, playing your Yamaha SG-175, or working on your application for leave to appeal, let's step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. Hi, Lisa. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So part of our series is to try to target uh, to young lawyers and lawyers who are want to enter into the field of criminal law. And the area of appeals is a really specialized area. And any guidance uh, that you can provide uh, to young lawyers would be appreciated. So let's talk about your practice of law. Um, so I, I got involved in appeals a little bit not uh, on purpose, which is to say that out of law school, I clerked at the Court of Appeal for Ontario. So my first exposure to law was really doing appeals. And, and by doing appeals, I mean watching other people do appeals and thinking that I knew how to do appeals because I got to judge senior counsel doing appeals from the vantage point of a judge's assistant. Um, so appeals is something that, something that I understood. So as I was moving into practice as a lawyer, appeals were the thing that I knew best. So it's the thing that I felt most comfortable doing. Um, I spent the first year of my practice working on Bay Street, and then I moved into criminal law and, and started doing exclusively appeals for the first six months or so uh, of crim before I came and worked with you, Paul. Um, so appeals, I kind of fell, I fell into them, I guess, is, is part of the answer. Funnily enough, I think now I, I much prefer trials to appeals. It's a lot more fun, but I still think that doing appellate work is very important and makes you a better lawyer. Because appeals, appeals are, are such an important error correction function. I mean, if you can win them, which you can't, but you can always try. Um, but they, they, they really hone your legal skills because you need to understand the law in a very deep way, not just, you know, a couple talking points in the OCJ, but you're going to have very smart experts grilling you on jurisprudence. So you need to understand the law deeply and intimately. And it makes you a better writer because a big part of the appeal process is uh, your factum, which is supposed to be a tight, concise document, and you only get about, maybe if you're lucky, an hour or so to explain your point orally, so you really have to be a good writer. And so doing appeal work makes me stay up on the law and also makes me uh, keep honing my writing skills. It's a great way that you explain the intersection between the appeal practice and now your preferred uh, uh, trial practice. Um, let's talk about the process of appeals and uh, how you address a, a client who has come to you and wants your assistance for an appeal. Yeah, so clients need to know too, and they hopefully will have advice from their trial lawyer, but if not, if you have a client coming with no prior experience, um, they need to file a notice of appeal right away. Even if they don't have counsel, they can file you know, the court of appeal an inmate notice of appeal or basically a self-represented notice of appeal. And that gets the ball rolling. That, that sends the signal to the appeal court, whether it's the court of appeal for Ontario or the summary conviction appeal court in Superior Court, that there's going to be an appeal. Um, and then I tell my clients there are a couple big steps that have to happen right away. Step one, we have to order transcripts, and that's going to be a big cost, and it's time-consuming. So the first thing you do is tell them, 
here's the approximate budget for transcripts. Here's how much the appeal itself is going to cost. Uh, a lot of appeals, most appeals, I'd say, are on legal aid, especially to the Court of Appeal. Um, so at that point, you need to be putting in an opinion letter to Legal Aid Ontario, trying to get funding. When your funding application is denied, as it sometimes is, you then need to go through the appeal process internally. But once you have money um, in your pocket, which is always a challenge for appeals, really it's a matter of waiting on those transcripts, getting those transcripts, ordering all of the exhibits or the originating papers from the court of first instance and putting them into appeal books. And if you're smart along this process, you're going to be talking to the Crown and, and negotiating what goes in the appeal book. Uh, and also a very important step is bail pending appeal if they've been sentenced to jail time, because although that may not be a substantive part of the appeal from your perspective, it's a huge part of the appeal from your client's perspective if they've been sentenced to jail time. Before we talk about bail pending appeal, um, I know that in my practice, when you were helping me out, unfortunately, you had to help when I lose trials. And and uh, let's talk about that other scenario uh, when you're lucky enough to be the respondent on an appeal. How does how how does that make it different uh, uh, strategically and also uh, for your client in general? Well, as you know, uh, for a while there, we had a couple cases where we managed to win some great trial decisions, only to have the crown probably <laughs> appeal them both. Um, in that case, I mean, it's really crappy for the client because they've got their acquittal, they're feeling great, you know, everything's fantastic, and then you get the dreaded notice of appeal within 30 days from the Crown. And so from that perspective, you're, you're responding, you're waiting, and it, it's kind of nice as an appeal lawyer to be the respondent for a change uh, because all of the, the sort of administrative steps that I was just describing, those are not your problem. You get to have the cushy position normally reserved for the Crown, which is sitting back and waiting, and then you get their factum saying what all the issues are. And then you get to respond. Um, and it's it, you're pretty much exclusively dealing with writing a factum and then responding orally in court. The downside to being a respondent in a Crown appeal is there is a robust internal process at the Crown's office that, for them to decide to appeal. So they don't tend to take um, frivolous appeals up. Not, not to say you can't win appeals as a respondent, we often do, but those are usually uh, stronger appeals than the average appeal because the Crown has thought long and hard about choosing to bring them. So it, it, it can be really crappy for a client to tell them, really sorry, I know you won your trial, but now you're going to have to pay a lawyer all over again to try to keep that trial result that you're so happy with. I know as defense lawyers, it's often difficult for us to realize our value and ask for money from the clients. Which situation is more difficult is when the client comes to you after a loss and says, I really want to appeal this, I'll spend whatever money is necessary to do it. Or when on the 29th day, they receive a copy of the notice of appeal and say, why do I have to pay more money? I mean, didn't I, you do your job, Cooper? Yeah. I mean, I think from a financial perspective, both are tough. Um, but Usually when the, the client has lost, they have a lot. I mean, they've got skin in the game in a very serious way. They want to pay to remedy what they view as, as a mistake. I know you were speaking about uh, the importance of bail pending appeal. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the process and what steps you need to take to ensure that you're able to get freedom for your client until the sunset clause uh, triggers or sets down. Yeah, so a, a bail pending appeal is, is very important, obviously from the client's perspective because they don't want to be in jail, but also for some sentence appeals, um, especially if it's a shorter sentence, the, the appeal might be moot if they've already served their whole sentence by the time you reach uh, the appeal hearing, and that, that can and does happen all the time. Um, so that stops the clock. Bail pending appeals um, 
can be a bit complicated if you haven't done them before because they're not they're not like a bail at first instance you don't just show up and you have a synopsis and you kind of roll with that you need to put together all the normal things you would for a bail at first instance so you need to have sureties need to have a strong release plan probably stronger than you would have had to have on the same charges before somebody was convicted because they're no longer presumed innocent, obviously. Uh, but you also need to have a couple things you might not think about, one of which is an, either an affidavit or a summary of the merits. So this means you need to understand what you're going to be arguing right away. And this can be a challenge because usually you only have, if you were trial counsel, you might have more insight. But most of my appeals, I wasn't trial counsel. So I'm in a position where I have the trial judgment. I have trial counsel write me a letter that says, here are all the things that I think went wrong. You might have a copy of the jury charge if it's a jury trial, but you're really operating on skeletal materials in some cases and you need to say, here are the grounds of appeal. Here's why they're not frivolous. And that's the standard. It doesn't have to be, here is my amazing appeal ground, but it's it has to be more than, than frivolous. So you explain why you think the appeal has merit because that's a big part of the bail pending analysis. You explain you know, what your release plan is and, and you argue it in front of a single judge of the court of appeal or a single judge in summary conviction appeal court. Um, the client does need to file an affidavit for bail pending appeal, unlike at bail in first instance. And so there are just a lot of work to be done preparing surety affidavits, client affidavits, affidavit or summaries of merits, putting together any materials. You want to have research in there as well to back up your appeal grounds. You may have to prepare, I mean, honestly, like a mini factum or even a real factum in some complicated cases. So it is not an unsubstantial piece of work, and I'd advise any trial counsel who are dabbling in appeals not to not to think that it's going to be the same amount of work as a bail at first instance because it's a lot a lot more involved and i've actually seen you undertake appeals from the beginning to the end and i know that once we're past that bail pending appeal phase and you finally get the transcripts there is a substantial amount of work put in can you tell us how you address the work uh, uh, and and the different steps you take because it's hours and hours and hours yeah, I mean, work. hundreds of hours I, I remember when i was first doing appeal work um there were appeal lawyers who only did appeals and they they were diligently doing their work and then there were trial lawyers who did a few appeals and they were always the ones that their factums were late years late you know not to throw anybody under the bus but i was like what's wrong with these people can't they just get their factums done like it's just a factum but now i know when your <laughs> appeals take so much time and when you're in trial courts Tomorrow, the judge wants to see blah, and you got to have blah done for tomorrow. And so the appeals, they sit over your back shoulder, and the transcripts seem to grow in size, and you really, you never get a chance to sit down with them. And it, it, it is a massively time-consuming thing, because you're, you're looking at reading every word of what was said at the trial. I mean, I have an appeal that I'm gearing up to do now where the trial is, you know, 10 months long. Every, every day of trial needs to be read and, and summarized so that you can come back to it. And you, wanna, you don't want to just read it once because then you have to come back to it time and time again. So you want to be reading and summarizing and taking notes. And it's just, it ends up being a massive undertaking. And so I'd suggest that if you're going to be someone who's thinking of taking on appeals, make sure you really set aside time for yourself that you can be uninterrupted in doing appeal work because it's so hard to just squeeze your appeals into your evenings and weekends around a trial practice. The appeal comes to you, and you've probably had an opportunity to either read the judge's charge or the rulings, um, but in an appeal that is long, uh, 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 that takes a long time, especially when you're talking about, for example, the 10-month trial, um, how do you approach, do you, do, you, do, you, do you read the transcripts two or three times? What's your strategy to summarize those transcripts? 
Uh, how do you how do you, how do you deal with it? Because it's such a massive undertaking. It's almost as large as a big project and putting together disclosure. And I know how difficult that is. And and client and, and other lawyers know how difficult it is. I, I just want, I, I can only imagine it's exp exponentially more difficult to to read a, 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 the transcripts of a trial over and over again. Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends on whether you're working with other people or just for yourself. If it's just for me, I'm probably going to take notes on the transcripts as I go through, where I'll, I'll always like put the page reference number, but I'm not going to create like a formal chart for myself. Um, some people will have page number, line number, and then a sort of summary of every witness's evidence. I tend to do it a little bit more summary style if it's just for me. And I also always read it on a computer screen. So I'm, I'm highlighting in different colors. And so green might be for the first ground of appeal. Anything that I think is relevant to that I'm going to highlight in green and then same for pink and whatever um, so that at least I can go back to it and have a visual aid. The, the better I get with Adobe PDF I now use bookmarks to tag you know things that are again referencing different grounds so that it's easy to flip back and Adobe has clever things where you can then pull out this is now an ad for Adobe uh, you can now pull out all of the bookmarks that all of the things that relate to that issue you can see all those pages and, and, and sort of excerpt them so you have that summary for yourself um, but, but you really don't have time, and frankly, legal aid is not going to pay you to read the transcript four times. So you need to be very smart about how you do it, and you need to move to an easier-to-review summary form as soon as you can, which means that first pass of the transcripts needs to be, you're, you're creating work product, you're, you're really digging into it and summarizing it. I've also seen, and I'm, I'm now stealing from, whenever I work with another appeal lawyer and they do a smart thing, I just steal it for myself. So working with some other appeal lawyers recently, they've created an Excel spreadsheet of all of the witnesses and summarizing what their role is. Like what, not like what they said in summary form, but you know, this is the guy who, this is the officer who, was the affiant to get the wire uh, authorization, or this is the guy on the corner who saw the car drive by. And then you just have like a, your cast of characters, the same way that you would if you're preparing for a trial, but thinking about that in terms of the appeal. And then you start to have evidence that matters more than others. So if you have a ground of appeal to do with you know, an error in law in the jury charge, you may actually not care very much about a lot of the facts. And so you need to read it once to understand it and issue spot as you go through, but you may end up, and I have appeal that I just argued where there were five uh, transcripts, five days of evidence that were like, that was the appeal. The other 25 days of, of transcript, I read them, I summarized them for myself. I know what's in there in case I got a question later at the hearing, but those are the, th those are the most important five days of evidence, and you end up distilling it down to what really matters. What about the law? Like in a case that you're explaining now, you're able to focus down on the limited facts that apply to the appeal, but the law itself may be substantial. How do you approach your research? I think the scariest thing for new lawyers, especially getting into appeals, is you actually have to know the law in broad sense before you jump into a transcript, because what your job is is to issue spot. You need to be able to find errors in law, which means if you're going to issue spot in a jury charge, you better damn well know what a jury charge should look like. You better know what the standard Watt language is like and when it's going to be modified by the NJI instructions. Because when you know the Watt instructions, you see something that looks weird and you're like, what happened here? And so you, you focus on those things right away. Now this is a plug for the Watt manual. Yeah, jury. exactly. I'm just advertising. <laughs> the NJI one is free and online. It's also fine. Uh, but... Uh, no, so you need I've used to, the Watt one for 30 years. It's great. No, it, it, I mean, everyone uses it. You can barely get a trial judge off a Watt. Um, but you, you got to know what you're looking for, because otherwise you're just reading and going, oh, that's an interesting story. Oh, what an interesting story. You know, you need to be able to spot 
For example, one of my most recent appeals, which is under reserve right now, you know, if there's an issue in terms of how the Crown, or the Crown did not bring an issue under Section 9 sub 2 of the Canada Evidence Act. But if you're not familiar with the Canada Evidence Act, you're not going to look at that and say, that's not how you, you can't refresh a witness's memory that way. So you need to become a master of the rules of evidence and, and be up to date on the law. So the first step for anyone is you know, read all the Court of Appeal decisions in CRIM that come out each week. Read Supreme Court of Canada cases. Go back to your evidence notes from law school and remind yourself of the basic rules of evidence because the best appeals are issues of law. It's easier to win. The standard is lower for you to prove to the court that there was a mistake. So you got to know the law. Um, and once you do that, then you can issue spot through the appeal. And then I always, you know, my, my background knowledge is always a starting point. You narrow it to maybe five issues that you're kind of going to keep an eye on or, or do some research on. And then you sit down and you do intensive research on those issues. And usually in doing so, you realize, oh, the Court of Appeals ruled on this seven times and every time they dismiss this ground of appeal. Uh, so that maybe isn't going to be a good one. And you kind of go from there. I want to switch your hat from being the appeal lawyer to the trial lawyer. And when you're um, at a trial, what do you think about when you're speaking or asking questions to ensure the record is protected? And how important is that? Yeah, I, I think every trial lawyer should do an appeal just to see how important, terrifyingly important, the role of defense counsel is at trial. Uh, you, you know, the things that you focus on when you're a trial lawyer who does appeals and you're always thinking about, you know, seeing this in writing later is you got to always be talking to the record. You have to make those objections. That margin call objection, you probably should make it. You should be, you're basically papering the record for appeal counsel. In, in, so if something is a little bit off, even things, stupid things now, like my friend's been leading on these issues and I'm going to permit it for now, but I want to be clear that my friend must not lead when they come into this area in advance. So you're not just giving tacit consent to something that you know is wrong. You're being very clear if a line is crossed, that'll be an error. Uh, or always rising to object to issues, not, not letting it lie. Um, always pushing back in the jury charge and fighting for a better, more defense-friendly jury charge. So, and so it's really hard. I mean, when you're an appeal lawyer, and this is my com complaint about some appeal lawyers on Crown and Defense side who don't do any trials, is they don't realize how incredibly hard it is to be this incredible, perfect master, wizard of the law at the trial level when you've got your notes for the cross that you're drafting, you're trying to listen, co-counsel is yelling at you, the judge is asking a question, you're trying to pay attention to all these things, but you also know you've got to be protecting the record. And so I think being an appeal lawyer who does trials, you become much more diligent at, well, Your Honor, I appreciate your ruling on that point, but I just want to make a few comments just so, so blah, 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 you know, here are the three things I'm still pissed about. Because um, then you, you don't leave the Crown on appeal, the ability to come back and say, oh, well, you know, defense counsel seemed to accept the ruling. No, defense counsel explained why they thought it was wrong for three reasons. That's so much easier on appeal. Or, or the words that I hate when some of my cases have gone to the court appeal and say, oh, that was tactical. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, it's, and, and look, there's case law that says it's basically trite law that, you know, defense's failure to object is not fatal to a ground of appeal, but boy, does it not help. Uh, it's really much harder to argue because the court doesn't want you taking, they don't want you having double, multiple kicks at the can. So if at a trial you tactically stayed silent, you thought you were going to win the trial. And then on appeal, you go, oh, this horrible error the crown made. Oh, anyone would be shocked by it and, but not trial counsel. So you got to be very cautious about protecting the record and, and taking your thoughts that you may have 
or even discussions you have with the crown about why you've agreed to something and make them explicit. Put them in writing effectively by saying them out loud on the record in court. So you've put all these hours into the prep and now you're about to go to the court of appeal and you see you have one and a half hours for the appeal. Um, that's the time allotted for yourself, the crown and reply. So can we talk a little bit about uh, oral advocacy before an appeal court? Oral advocacy in an appeal court is really different than at a trial court. I mean, the core competencies aren't any different. You should still be clear and concise and organized in, in the trial level, but you really have a shortage of time, which means you don't, I mean, when I remember when I first started doing trials, I, was, I would come in and I'd say my piece in like two minutes and then sit down and be told, you know, you can walk me through the evidence, you can talk more and I was like oh really that's so nice um but the appeal court you just don't have time for that and frankly they're much more engaged and active so uh, they being the judges um so that you may be pulled off your script in any event and spend the whole time answering questions so you need to be a complete master of the record and know all of the law all of the cases you've referenced cases referenced inside the cases you've referenced and so a big part of your prep for oral argument is just being an absolute master of the file and the law in that area and I tend to try to prepare very concise submissions that I think get to the heart of what the issue is for the court. You don't have a lot of time to give a big preamble or to say, you know, to editorialize things as you go through. You want to have clear, concise submissions prepared uh, that that get to the heart of it. You want to also have all the, like the pinpoint citations available to you because you don't have time to be flipping through materials or walking a judge through seven pages of evidence unless that's the whole, you know, that is what the appeal is all about. But you really, you don't have time. So you need to be focused on what pitch can I make? What is the clearest, most distilled form of the argument that I want to make? And how do I package that up and hand it to the court? How do I help them write a decision in my favor in my oral arguments? Um, and then you get in, and if you have a good appeal and a good appeal panel, you throw all of that away, and the whole time is spent, um, or a lot of, part of that is spent answering questions. And I really like that. I mean, some lawyers I know, they have a pitch they want to make, and it pisses them off. They don't get to make it. But having an engaged panel is always the best sign. They ask you questions, and if you're smart, you have your pre-sort of prepared stuff you want to say, and you go, yes, that's a great question, Justice so-and-so. In fact, the way I would answer it is, oh, there's the submission that I prepared for myself on this issue, or here's all the law that I know because I prepared this submission. And you find a way to kind of work your talking points into answering the judge's questions. But the biggest mistake that the council make on appeals is being so wedded to their script, they don't answer their goddamn questions. You gotta answer their questions. If a, if a judge on the court of appeal wants to know the answer to something and it'll help them decide their appeal, answer that question. And if you can't answer that question, maybe you deserve to lose. But answer that question directly, supported by evidence if you can, supported by law if you can, but answer their questions and don't be afraid of that. I'm sure when you're being questioned by a panel of three judges, it's got to be stressful. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, I, I love it. Like, it's actually the part of appellate advocacy that I like the most. I like being in that hot seat because you really have a chance. And I know that, you know, there's, there are differing views about how important the oral hearing is. I still think that it's really important because I've had appeals that I know that I've won because of an oral hearing um, in that you can tell when a panel comes in and they think, oh, okay, this is... This is a nothing. This isn't going anywhere. Let's just get this over with. Not that they don't do their jobs properly, blah, blah, blah. But 
you can tell when you're up against it. And there is no better feeling as an appellate advocate than being able to pull them over to your side a bit and being able to say, I know that you think that this is, you know, this isn't a big deal, but let me explain to you why it matters. Let me walk you through why this is actually a huge problem. Let's go back to the facts. And it, it's really nice to see them coming around and, and getting it, but it is, it is scary. Are you able to see the crystallization in their mind when you bring them towards you or you, you're able to flip their position and see it in a diff, through a different lens? I mean, on a really, really good day, sure. Uh, but no, but you know, the, the best thing I've ever had an appeal judge say to me is, huh, because you're like, yes, huh, <laughs> indeed, um, you're thinking about it. But no. Do you, you use humor at all? I mean, I, I don't think I'm ever intentionally funny, but I certainly will. You know, if you can find a way to be self-effacing or to be a little bit funny, it does break the tension of an appeal because appeals can be intense and aggressive. And sometimes if you can bring a bit of levity into them, I think everyone has a better time. Uh, but I don't, I don't like script any jokes. I'm not that kind of funny. So. <laughs> and what about the civility between yourself and other counsel? Yeah, I mean, I think civility is important at all levels of court. And, you know, generally speaking, working with a crown on the other side, it's a fairly formalized exercise. So I try to be, you know, nice, polite, making reasonable accommodations for the other side as is appropriate. And I, I hope that they do the same for me. Okay. You want to tell us about one of your favorite appeals or anything that sticks out in your mind that you want to share with the audience? Uh, you know, I don't, I think I have a favorite appeal. I, I've argued a lot of appeals that are not winners and I've argued a few that have gone okay. Um, in terms of preparing or appeal strategy, one, one appeal always is a good cautionary tale for me, which is that sometimes when you have an appeal, that's not a good appeal. You don't have a ground that you feel really confident in. There's a certain tendency, especially among junior counsel, to throw everything at the wall that'll stick. Your hope is if I just argue these five grounds of appeal, you know, collectively, maybe the judge or the court will, will see that there was a problem and send it back. That's not a good way to do appeals. And I think that it betrays a lack of confidence sometimes. You're not confident in your ability to decide what the big issues are. So you just, you keep it all in. Uh, and so I noticed... What was very funny for me is coming out of the court of appeal clerking, I had this crystal clear in my mind. You got to be laser focused, pick your two grounds, pick your one ground if that's the winner and get rid of all the nonsense. But it's much harder to do uh, when you are the one responsible for the appeal. And I noticed that I had a tendency early on to throw in more stuff than I should have, to put in extra grounds as a, well, I, I need to have something in here. I need to beef it up a bit. And before the oral hearing, uh, I would always sit down with the appeal again and go, okay, well, that was a mistake. Like, I, I don't know, why did, why did I include this in here? This, this should not have gotten past my factum screening process. Uh, and an appeal that always stands out for me is I got to court and it was a summary conviction appeal. I got into court and the first thing I said to Justice Code was, uh, you know, Your Honor, I'm going to be abandoning my second and third grounds of appeal. And he said, ah, that's very wise, Miss Jorgensen, and then proceeded to be very friendly for the balance of the appeal. But it made me realize, you know, everyone knew that these were not going to get me anywhere. And I would have just been wasting my time uh, by, by wasting my very precious oral hearing time focusing on grounds that were, were not going to succeed. So I think, you know... Being told it's a good idea not to continue with your arguments shouldn't be a good day in court, but it was an important lesson for me that I, you know, really in that case, I should have culled these grounds many months prior when I submitted the factum. Um, and I've also had other appeals where you come in and the court says, isn't this really all about blah? 
And you go, yeah, it is. And they go, oh, well then what are we doing here? Like, it's clear that they don't care at all. And they don't think that your ground has any merit. Um, and I think I found those moments to be scary at first, but now you kind of like it, you know, it's the worst you can do is where you are right now. And all you can do in the oral hearing is try to advance that ball a little further to make them understand why you think it does matter. Uh, and, 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 and see what traction you can get. And, you know, that can be a good advocacy exercise of itself. See, I think uh, a, a lot of young lawyers don't realize, and, and I know for myself, when I stand up in court, I still get nervous. And, and I think all of us do. Um, and it's the prep that we put in before we get to that door or before we're in front of that jury or in front of that witness or in front of the court where... That's, that's the foundation we have to stand on. And then the nerves are there. And then once you get them engaged, I think that uh, it, it, it's helpful. But I, I don't know if people understand that, young lawyers, that at, at our years of experience that uh, we still uh, care enough that uh, we get worried. Uh, can you share some experience with with the listeners? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that your last comment is really what it's all about. You care enough to be worried. Because I'm sure there are people that maybe get to a point where they don't, they aren't stressed. But I think if you're not stressed, something's gone wrong. Because especially with an appeal, you've put in potentially hundreds, maybe a thousand hours of work into preparing this thing. And you come to court and you have your hour and a half. You have your hour. Sentence appeal, you have your 30 minutes. And that's your one shot to sort of make the final pitch. And it, it is nerve-wracking because you know it's, there are no do-overs. You don't have time. Like in a trial, sometimes you have time to get comfortable. You've got time to warm up. You're on. The court says, okay, thank you. You have 30 minutes. You be may begin. And, and that's your only moment. So you need to, it is uh, intense and nerve wracking. So I, I think that the only reason that we're nervous is because we care and we want to get the best outcome for our clients. And so we put a lot of pressure on ourselves as lawyers to, to do everything in that moment and to do it perfectly. And I think every lawyer knows the best oral argument you'll ever make is in the shower the next morning or that night in your car where you're like, ah, that's the hook. That's the golden thread that goes through the whole appeal and I didn't get there. Um, but I think that's just just normal. Um, yeah, for me, for me in terms of managing the nerves, I'm a fast talker. It's always been my problem. And so my, my papers are full of, you know, the word slow or, you know, pause, breathe, forcing me to break up my submissions into something that a normal person can write down. Um, and I also just find the preparation is, is so important. When judges become uh, very engaged in discussions about different parts of the law or the evidence, are you able to still get your story or theme uh, into the appeal as part of your advocacy? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that that's the goal, right? You want to be answering their questions in a direct way that always comes back to your fundamental point. And so, you know, if they're asking you a question about something in the evidence, something in the record, you can say, yeah, I mean, let me take you there. I'll explain this all to you. And so you'll see it here and here, these line numbers, write those down. You know, it's, this is exactly the problem that we're talking about. And you come, you pull it back to your, your message. It's sort of like doing a media interview where you have your talking points. But, but the difference here is that you need to, you can't just skip the question and go to your talking point. That's a huge mistake. You need to synthesize your talking point into the answer that you're giving the judge to help them get from where they are asking that question to where you are believing strongly that your point is right. And you want to walk them through the process 
in answering their question to get them where you want them to go. If I were a young counsel, you know, about to embark on a, a career that will include appeals, what advice would you give me? What steps do you think I should take so that I can be comfortable and be able to answer questions and be ready for that appeal? Yeah, so I think there are a few basic things that, that you should definitely do. I mean, I've already mentioned read the law. That's really important. Read appeal judgments because the ideal factum is one that is written in such a way that a judge could lift huge portions of it and write their judgments. So you want to write it in a way that helps them get to your, your argument. Um, but you also want to go watch a bunch of appeals. I know it's, uh, you know, we're recording this in COVID times. Uh, it's hard right now, but you want to watch as many appeals as possible because they have a very distinct flavor to them. And the more that you can see how that goes, the better off you'll be. By the same token, offer your services to more senior lawyers. You know, write factums for them, whether it's, I mean, you should be getting credit for your work, but at the very least, help with a factum. And then you can see the process from start to finish under the supervision of somebody who knows what they're doing. Uh, and then I think when you start getting your own appeals, talk to, talk everybody's ear off about it. The most valuable thing that I do in preparing for an appeal is talk to, you know, my friends in the profession who I trust. I'll say, let me run this by you. What do you think of this? What do you think of this fact? What do you think of this argument? And they'll say, you know, that's crappy or that's great or have you read this case? And you just, you learn so much by basically mooting the arguments through over and over again. Uh, and, and remember as well that the factum is so important um, and you should be, I know a lot of appeal lawyers are, are bad for this and I'm certainly bad for this and I'm trying to break the habit. Bad for focusing on the factum is the thing you have to get done because you're usually busy, it's a huge volume of work and you just want to get the thing submitted because then the appeal process moves forward. And you don't really get the appeal into your bones until you're preparing for the oral hearing. And that's why arguments have a habit of shifting or, or new thoughts emerge before the oral hearing. But I think as a young lawyer, take the time and, and build it into your calendar to have that kind of time to sit with and really get the appeal and talk about the appeal and, and practice how you would answer questions about the appeal and how you would argue it you know, orally before you submit the factum. So the factum can represent the best your best foot forward, the best view of the appeal. Do you have any recommendation for young lawyers, whether it's Pinot or uh, Chardonnay, if they're going to sit down and watch on C-SPAN, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada, because uh, there are some great uh, advocates before the Supreme Court of Canada. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, which is that we do actually have a phenomenal treasure trove of excellent appellate advocacy. The webcasts for most appeals are available at the Supreme Court level, and you should just, you should just watch them. I mean, I... I often. I was going to ask Pinot. I don't. I don't drink anymore, so I'm. I'm bad. I mean, I. I cannabis edibles go very nicely with a with a good appeal argument. But if, if especially if I'm going to make reference to uh, a Supreme Court of Canada case in a factum or an oral argument, there's no better way to understand the ultimate decision than to go back to how it was argued, how things were pitched, because you get so much more nuance out of the judgment if you've seen how it was presented and what questions the judge who ultimately wrote the decision asked and things like that. So even, I mean, in my car now, I'll put on the SCC hearings and just listen to the audio when I'm driving. I mean, back when I was driving to court all the time. So I would just be listening to those kind of like a podcast. And I found that was very helpful for just the formality of the appeal process, but also how people pitch arguments, how they reference case law, and, and fundamentally how they structure their thoughts in the most effective way possible. Now, as part of your career, you've worked uh, diligently with the Criminal Lawyers Association, and you've had the opportunity uh, to help in some public interest, 
public interest appeals. Um, does that differ or uh, from, you know, when you're working for a client in, in, uh, that has, you know, fear of going to jail as opposed to going on a nuanced point of law, for example, in the Groya case? Yeah. I'm, I, yeah. So I, I do think that interventions are pretty different in that you get, you get to, unlike when you have a client, you obviously have the client's interests first and foremost, and there may be really interesting legal arguments and you're going to advance them, but you're always very focused on the client. Um, an intervention lets you focus exclusively on the ideas and the impact of the decision on a particular interest. And so most of the interventions that I've been involved with have been on behalf of the CLA where we care about you know, the fairness of the trial, the defense bar, you know, fairness to an accused person, uh, not taking away substantive rights. So like we really are guardians of uh, you know, a proper functioning justice system that works for an accused person. And so it frees you to be able to focus purely on the ideas and to advance any argument that you think is supportive of that position. And so you may not actually, give, in a given appeal, care about what the ultimate bottom line decision is, but you care about how the court talks about an issue that helps them arise at their decision, or you care about the impact of that area of law on a different area of law. So you get to be laser focused on, on your position, your arguments, and that's actually what your role is. You're, you're there to, if you just stand up and say, I agree with the appellant on everything, thanks, you know, make the right decision, that's not a good intervener. An intervener says, here's a perspective that you may not already have, Supreme Court or Court of Appeal. Here, here are a set of facts that you may not be aware of, or you know, here's the impact of this judgment on something else that you may not have considered. Let me explain to you why this decision is so important in light of that. Here's a different perspective. And that, that can be a very fun uh, and challenging advocacy role, especially challenging because at the Supreme Court of Canada these days, you get five minutes on your feet. So again, you put in all of this work and you go up there and you're excited. You're in this fancy forum of the Supreme Court and you have five minutes and maybe they ask you a question partway through and really all you had was time to half answer one question. So that again hits home how important the factum is in that case because that, if you want your perspective to be taken into account, you, you need to make sure it's in writing because you may not have much time, if any, to make an impact in the oral hearing. Well, I think today uh, our audience witnesses your proficiency in oral advocacy. Uh, I want to thank you uh, for participating in the Garage Series uh, for the many years that you helped and for today. Um, and I guess I'm starting to learn a little bit about podcasts. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Well, uh, I wonder what you're referring to. Uh, no, so I, I do have a podcast with Danielle Robitaille. Uh, it's the Iman Publishing Lawyers Lounge podcast. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all the podcast places. You can also go to imond.ca slash LLP dash LJ. LLP-LJ, and there'll be links to all the different download sites. And again, it's a criminal law podcast. We talk about basically anything to do with criminal practice that interests us in the moment, and uh, you know, I hope you check it out. It reminds me of when I started practicing law down in Toronto at what is now the Superior Court. Uh, we'd sit in the lounge at 361, and there would be a rotating door of people coming in and telling stories and giving advice, and I think what you're doing is great, so thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. A shout out to our fantastic producers, Xenia Sethna and Jason Cooper. For more free legal education and to check out 
what we've been doing for the past 10 years, go to thelawgarage.com. That is thelawgarage.com.